I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening, and thank you especially to those of you who've had a chance to recommend the show to somebody you think might like it. Please do so if you haven't yet uh, had the chance. It does make a difference. Uh, also, a uh, quick, quick and less complicated call to action this week. If you, uh, if you listen to the show and you enjoy it, take a moment to let me know if there are any podcasts you subscribe to you um, that have extra episodes or that you have, uh, you know, whatever additional content in this, the horrible uh, uh, jargon of our times. Uh, if there are any podcasts you you uh, you donate to or you subscribe through Patreon to, send me a note. Just let me know what those are, or maybe what you like about them, what they um, what they have going on. I would appreciate it. You can write to sleerickets at gmail.com. This week, I am speaking to Austin Allen. He's come back to the show. He has very generously agreed to answer some questions about his recent essay, Hardline Politics, in the Los Angeles Review of Books. It's a terrific essay. It's really worth reading. It is all about, it is all about the long and bloody battle between free verse and formal verse. Uh, Austin has a lot of smart things to say about it. And when it came out, a lot of people were uh, uh, happy. A lot of a lot of f- mostly formal poets were very uh, pleased and vindicated. And plenty of other people, some of them also formal poets, were pretty pissed off. I had a conversation with a couple of them, and I put out an invitation to all of you to send in questions or comments or objections about Austin's essay. Austin also got a couple of responses. And so he came in and we just sat down and we went through all of the objections, all of the problems, all of the quarrels that people had with his essay. And he handled uh, this barrage quite gracefully. Uh, So I'm very grateful to him for being such a good sport. Uh, Austin is, in addition to being the author of this and a number of other excellent critical essays, he's also the author of Pleasures of the Game, uh, a winner of the Anthony Hecht Prize, some year I don't remember, but it was recent. It's just it's a terrific collection of poetry. So do check that out. I will have links to all of these in the show notes. But let's go ahead and get right to that conversation with Austin Allen now. You were very generous in agreeing to to come onto the sort of blind firing squad. Uh, yeah, the hot, the hot seat. Yeah, yeah. So you have this this essay that yeah, it's a I, not I wouldn't say like necessarily like a pugilistic essay, but it sort of it takes up a unlike a lot of writing about contemporary poetry, it has a very clear specific argument, if not fight, that it's that it's taking up. Um, do you want to you want to give a uh, an abstract or a brief account? Absolutely. So this is called Hardline Politics on the Myth of Free Verse. Uh, it's in the LA Review of Books, and it's uh, talking about what I argue is a, a political stigma that has come to surround formal or metered verse as opposed to free verse. I see it as a myth, and you know, roughly speaking, the myth is that metrical verse is politically regressive unless proven otherwise. There's a kind of default conservatism to it that is political uh, in nature. And uh, that free verse is, is politically progressive uh, unless proven otherwise. And you talk about the ways in which it's a problem. I think you very smartly say it's 
it ends up being mostly innuendo rather than rather than kind of overt stated prejudice. One of the objections I got in a couple of different forms was not that meter is is in fact conservative or fascist or whatever, but that mm. this stigma does not exist. Yeah. That, so that was, you know, that was, that was kind of the, the, the primary response. Uh, that's a question. As you say, this essay is very long <laughs> and the LARB <laughs> was very generous in giving me this much space. And I kind of set a word limit on myself after a certain point. I mean, this, this, <laughs> this, this debate can go in so many different directions that there were some things I was not really able to in- include. And so there was only so much context the, uh, that I did provide in the essay as to why, you know, why this, why now? Um, one thing I tried to do in the essay itself was throw out a few statistics, you know, in terms of publication uh, numbers. And of course, those could not be, uh, you know, perfect or exhaustive, but um, some representative statistics as to, you know, whether formal verse is actually um, appearing in any, you know, in any real quantity in major magazines, whether it's getting recognition at the level of grants, uh, prizes, things like that. Um, so I, I, I am very familiar with this idea that the, the debate was over kind of a generation ago. This is something I, I came and I, yeah, I came across in some of my own research. I actually came across it um, again uh, just the other day, a, a couple times actually, one in um, the, uh, the poet Daniel Brown has written a short critical book yeah, called yeah, Subjects yeah. in Poetry. Briefly, he, he touches on uh, this debate in this book and, and seems to sort of uh, support the idea that this, these arguments, the so-called form wars of the 80s and, and 90s, that storm has subsided. I also had an um, a, a email uh, from an old friend, Emily Copley, who's a critic um, and who also has a, a really uh, interesting book out coming out called um, Virginia Woolf and Poetry. Uh, she wrote me because in the intro to her book, she makes the same kind of claim as, as well. Again, just sort of incidentally, but uh, she was interested. The, the, the claim being that it's sort of that that battle has passed. The battle has passed. Yeah. yeah. And she was saying, you know, I read your essay. I was interested in it and interested to see maybe in some ways it hasn't. On the level of publication numbers, there is still a huge, huge disparity in terms of formal versus free verse getting published. Um, and this in an in a time when most major publications, programs, et cetera, say they're very much open to all forms, styles of poetry. It's very rare for a publication or institution to say, you know, no, nothing in meter and rhyme. <laughs> I mean, it would be refreshing, honestly. I would, it would I be refreshing. Yeah. yeah, it would be, it would be a there, there are, you know, There's like one or two that specifically say, only meter and rhyme, and th- I mean those are those are qu- quite rare. But there are a couple that have that explicit uh, stipulation. I think like that's yeah. That w- I I would kind of like to see. I actually would. I wish people made more specific uh, uh, demands about what too. they wanted to publish. <laughs> I think that would that transparency would be amazing, and I, I would I would welcome it and um, and respect it. But long story short, I, I do use the word innuendo in the piece. So I have you know on a, a sort of in personal exchanges and stuff certainly come across this idea that. Uh, fairly or unfairly, uh, formal verse still has a uh, conservative reputation, and I've, you know, heard that from from friends who write primarily in free verse as well as as well as form, um, and it does pop up. It it does you know bubble up kind of in the in the discourse. I see, you know, um, on social media or even I think there was um, at least one 
uh, panel at the AWP conference some years back, sort of taking up this question of form and conservatism and whether, uh, you know, so-called form meter and rhyme are still um, conservative traditionalist tethered to the kind of um, the, the canon, you know, and the worship of yeah. the canon as as in a kind of conservative way. So, so, so these ideas are still. I'm, I'm sorry, real, real quick. Are you hearing a whistling sound? Oh, that's my radiator. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. That's <laughs> what, all right. Good. That's fine. As long as I'm not, it's not in my head. Uh, but, yeah, all right, go ahead. <laughs> no, you're not. You don't have like. We have winter in Boston. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah. So. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't get made as much these days in formal venues and settings, but it still does get made informally on social media, in, in conference panel discussions, that kind of thing. I, I'll, I'll say my, my own experience is that it, it often takes, it's either innuendo or it's even not, if you put the formal prejudice to people who reveal it in their speech, I don't know that they would even recognize it. I don't know that they would even say it's not I don't, like in some cases, I think it's that it's sort of it's being coyly suggested. And in others, I think they're not even aware that that's how they're thinking. But that's I mean, I think I think it's even present in I mean, my kids children's book about poetry, you pick it up and it's like one of the very first things is, oh, well, poetry doesn't have to have rules. There's no no rules in poetry. And you think, sure, that's that's fine. And that, like, that's true enough in a way, but also what is that really getting at? Like, what, like, like, if you if you were to ask, say, well, what would be an example of a rule that poet? Like, the very first example, of course, that would come to mind is, well, poetry doesn't have to rhyme. Like, that would be, you know, that that's the that's like rule number one that people like to make a point of saying does not exist. Even, I mean, what I find very telling is that the presence of a little bit of formal poetry is so startling to people that it can. Like uh, Sam Riviere, in in my conversation with him, referred to the whole Christian Wyman period of poetry. He said, "Well, it was basically a new formalist magazine, nice, which nice. is fucking insane." Because it like they had a couple few formalists they published semi regularly. Joshua Megan, A. Stallings, you know, Wyman wrote writes some some free verse or some formal verse as well. But like, good lord, like the w- overwhelming majority was was free verse, and the, you know, I think those little sorts of remarks about that will speak dismissively of traditional or, 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 or establishment or rules. To me, I, I, I always find it hard to imagine what that could possibly mean if it didn't mean meter and rhyme. And I, I don't know that people are thinking of that, but I think it's in the way we, we talk casually about it. Yes. Yeah. So no, I, I've encountered that. Too. I've, I've noticed that, um, yeah, if, a, if, if a, whether it's a publication or a, some kind of poetry institution can be perceived as you know, formalist, just from the mere fact that they do not totally <laughs> uh, reject meter and rhyme, as opposed to any kind of predominance of you know of, of meter and rhyme within oh, that God, publication yeah. or what have you. And yeah. I, 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 I just as a little historical background here, I mean these these ideas go way way back, and that's something that was clarified for me in in researching this. I mean, when you look at even the way the earliest um, modernist free verse practitioners and proponents like Pound, like Eliot, the, the terms they use, they, they often use words like conservative verse for, you know, the, for formal versus radical verse. And of course, as the essay gets into, Eliot and Pound themselves were hyper conservative. Pound went, yeah. you know, trended uh, very fascist uh, as his yeah. life went on. So they were not 
political uh, progressives or radicals in that sense, but they saw um, what they, they saw what they were doing as poetically and aesthetically radical. Um, and so they often use those terms. And so I think just those terms alone sometimes get conflated uh, in, a, in a slippery kind of way with political conservatism and political yeah. Left oh, yeah, no, it's certainly. And, and you, you make a point of saying that, like, you, if you if you examine some of the language and some of its origins, uh, the, the you know, there were there were effectively radical propositions that, you know, Mussolini was making that were they were radical in the sense that they were sort of uprooting things and, you know, thoroughly. You know, and, pa- and Pound became a, of course, you know, oh, yeah, a, 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 great a booster of a great booster of Mussolini. So his idea of what was revolutionary and radical is not what a, you know, <laughs> a good leftist <laughs> would think of. <laughs> or good, yeah, good, a good, uh, or a good, good human being. Human yeah. being. <laughs> no, certainly. I, yeah. I'm a little bit curious because I mean, I think part of what contributed to this this sense of free verse as progress or freeing or opening up. Because that's often the, the other kind of language is that it's there's a uh, suggestion that if you really want to express yourself, if you really want to get to the authentic you, you have to break the shackles of meter and and write in this other way. And part of what I think certainly contributes to that impression that, pe- that people still have in in some cases say, I mean, I've gotten comments like that about my own work. Like, well, when are you going to have your break where you really, really hear the real you breakthrough and unrhymed lines that don't have meter. Part of what contributes to this is the, the trend of prominent, great 20th century poets who did make this shift in some way or another over the course of their careers. You, I mean, as, which is true for a lot of uh, representational and then later abstract or or experimental painters as well um but you you know uh robert warren robert lowell uh, bishop adrian rich elliot himself and and i mean pretty much any of the people who were writing free verse in the early or middle 20th century started out writing in formal meter because that was the dominant mode of the day do you i mean do you have thoughts on that or if there is anything to that suggestion i i don't know i go back and forth about it I go back and forth in the, in terms of my own uh, practice because I mean anytime as a as a as a writer of poetry a practitioner you know you you can easily find any one thing that you're doing any one mode that you're writing in uh, exhausting or restrictive after a while and, and want to do something else so so the idea of um, you know rhyme and meter specifically as being restrictive um, also goes back away you know as I was writing the essay I sometimes thought of Keats's uh, if by dull rhymes our English must be chained, you know, he, he does this in a sonnet. He, it's a sort of yeah. <laughs> almost, you know, he, he invokes the idea of rhyme being restrictive and then turns a beautiful sonnet anyway kind sure, of thing. Yeah. Um, and then in the 20th century, this, this of course becomes a huge thing. Um, I, I do think, I, I, I certainly uh, understand, uh, sympathize with, uh, sometimes I felt in my own practice, uh, the idea that um, formal techniques, meter and rhyme can feel uh, restrictive after a while and that you want to do something else. And I certainly think, and I I tried to discuss this in the essay, that um, when back in the day when uh, meter and rhyme were expected and kind of demanded by the poetry market, that certainly felt restrictive. And so I I, I tried to write with great sympathy about the the, um, 
the mid 20th century kind of great poets, some of whom you mentioned, especially who um, just felt that there was this expectation and this burden that first of all, they, they came up at a time when, they, when what they would have studied uh, or been taught as, as, as students of poetry was the canon, you know, Milton and <laughs> words, you know, and, and a whole lot of pentameter and a whole lot of meter and rhyme and almost nothing but. And so I certainly understand why that felt um, restrictive. And, at a, you know, back when the poetry market was kind of demanding that poets use those tools, it, it was a rebellious uh, and, in, and in certain ways freeing move to uh, try to explore new techniques and try new things and, and, and uh, clear space for different kinds of poetry. And so nothing in this um, essay is meant to, meant to be nostalgic for you know, an, an earlier period or, or want to turn back the clock on any of these things. I, I come from a position of wanting there to be as much going on at any one time in, in poetry in terms of forms and tools and verse styles and stuff as possible. So, you know, I, I suppose that there may be people out there who uh, simply, I don't know anyone in particular, but there may be people who simply do not like free verse and kind of wish the 60s had never happened, you know, or the 20th century yeah. and just want to take it all the way back to the Victorian era. Yeah. And uh, there, I, I, <laughs> there are I those want, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to err in that direction, but um, I, I uh, and if if the uh, if the poetry market if you know if we woke up tomorrow and all the journals were publishing only meter and rhyme that would be that would be creepy and that would right. seem like yeah. a weirdly regressive move. <laughs> Especially if they also said we we accept all. all yeah, right. <laughs> and so what is what is considered conservative in poetry at, at any one time has to has a lot to do with what the market expects or or, or demands yeah. you know and, and so. For those, some of those earlier gener generations, yes, definitely. It, it felt like there was a market expectation um, or a cultural expectation that they would use these forms and techniques and good for them for breaking out of it. Yeah. And there are, I mean, outside of a handful of often, you know, very much paleoconservative sort of self-consciously classically inclined magazines and conversations, you know, outside of a, a handful that sort of celebrate their own conservatism, it does seem like there, nobody wants to claim that, right? For him, for him, like nobody wants to say, "I yes, I am following a a more staid and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, unexceptional and non-experimental tradition." I'm trying to go. I'm trying to to follow only in others' footsteps. So I, I want to. I, I got so many of these little notes and things. In fact, I've been getting a bunch as we've been talking. I want to try to go through a few sort of of the shorter, quicker objections or questions and see if we can knock some of those out. And then like a lightning uh, round. Yeah. We can do like kind of a, kind of a quick lightning round. And then I got, I got some longer ones. And then uh, I got a one from Cameron, my, uh, my uh, teenage prodigy in the UK. And, um, and then you got kind of a, a strange, interesting one that I would be interested to, to talk some more about. So no one claims conserv meters conservative anymore. The stats seem cherry picked which I think is more true of some than the, than others. Like you, you make one, one comment about sort of the prizes and where those have gone. And, and that seems pretty hard to argue with that. It's something like three out of 118 prizes over the last several years that have gone to somebody who writes in, in meter. And then I was curious where you, why you, you sort of plucked the, 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 the handful of 
the care online for the Kenyan Review Online and the, the poetry. You sort of pulled up a couple exemplary issues, but then I, I wasn't sure why it was those and not others, or sort of mm-hmm. to what extent these were exemplary. Yeah. So in terms of the the data, um, lest I be accused of cherry picking, I mean, I, I would encourage folks to sort of run their own numbers. Yeah. Uh, one, one reason I, I kept it to two magazines, for example, and two very prestigious magazines is um, I, I don't love doing uh, call outs <laughs> I, <you> know, <laughs> in, my, in my critical work or on the internet. Or, you know, I, I mean, they're to be avoided if, if possible. I, I was not looking to put a bunch of magazines in the in the hot seat. Um, I took I, I, I took two um, that are consistently ranked among the top. You know, there are literary magazine rankings out there, and they consistently yeah. kind of rank in the top three or five. And just sort of giving a glimpse of how you know over a four to five year period, uh, very little was changing in terms of their uh, their publication numbers. But I think what I what I found in those in those cases, I think if if people kind of do the math themselves. Um, I think that they will find that is broadly true of, of most of the prestigious literary journals out there. That the that the num- that there won't be too much variation. Uh, I want to say too that in terms of the prizes, I di- I did get um, yeah I I, <laughs> I said three out of one hundred eighteen. I did get a couple notes from poets, one of whom said just said I'm a, I'm a formalist and I uh, won one of those awards. I, I think I can, I, I don't think there's a confidentiality uh, sure, attached yeah. to this. You know, it's, it's Shane McRae uh, pointed out yep. that he has uh, won a, a wedding award within the past uh, mm-hmm. 10 to 20 years and um, and also uh, some other uh, big awards and grants. And, and, uh, he's, and he's, he's a, he was a rare example of, I mean, I would love to see another trend of somebody who wrote more in free verse and has moved, has become more formal as he's yeah. gone along. Um, That's right. He also, I'll say, his poems because of their type, typographical representation on the page. I think, I think sometimes readers miss that they're formal. He, and he did mention that. Yeah. And, and another poet uh, was uh, Jennifer Clarvo, who again uh, said, you know, in in writing me that you know she she writes both free and 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 formal verse, and that I simply hadn't you know taken into account. Uh, some of the formal verse she's written. So, you know, I, I'm happy to sort of update that stat. Maybe, sure. you know, it, it may be five rather than three. I was, <laughs> out of 118. <laughs> out of 118. Yeah. But I, I don't think, <laughs> and I may be, you know, if I was wrong in a couple other cases, I, I just don't think the numerator is going to move around too much there. But yeah, I think that, that makes sense. You, you, you look, you know, go look up some other popular magazines and see what yeah. the numbers turn out to be. Because I think, it, I think, I think you, the trend will hold, even yeah. if the particulars vary. Thank you. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, too long didn't read is the most common response, which which is sort of it's like you're thankless because it's like it's it's so long and thorough because you're trying to cover your bases. Oh, okay. So I did I did hear that it was unfair to editors because editors don't actually have a bias. That I think on the and this is sort of this is something that it's you know it's one of the problems with statistics that you might be able to look at a larger field and say, well, this is the trend statistically, but an individual editor can still say, hey, well, I have no, I have no prejudice. I have no, you know, nothing against form. I don't, I don't uh, discriminate. And, and that's hard to argue with. I mean, and, and because the stakes are so much different than they are, or so much lower, I should say, than they are with, you know, other forms of discrimination you might highlight. It's, yeah, who would want to pick a, like, you go, <laughs> yes, go, I, I, go in peace, editors, you are absolved. You know? <laughs> yeah, on that point, I should probably point out that, the, yes, I, 
nowhere in the essay or in my own life ever have I, would I say that this is discrimination in some sort of <laughs> <laughs> traditional, like legal sense. Of, yeah, of no. Formalist poets are not a historically oppressed or marginalized group. No. This is all no. this is all lower stakes than that. Yeah. We're I'm just sort oh, of talking let me about. let me quickly get my air conditioning. Okay, thank you. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, so you were comparing yourself to Martin Luther King and saying that uh, <laughs> <laughs> formal poets are an oppressed class. That, yeah, is that what I was? I heard you through the air conditioner. I think I was doing the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. No, I yeah, was no, no, it. yeah. This is uh, this is in no way um, a uh, when, when we talk about editors. Um, not uh, taking much formal poetry. No, we're not talking about discrimination in any kind of <laughs> high stakes sense, or that it's that it's uh, that free verse poets or formal poets are historically oppressed or marginalized. You know, it has nothing to do with any of that. It's uh, you know, it's a work of criticism that that takes a kind of writing that gives me a lot of pleasure and joy, which is you know, metrical poetry, and tries to uh, argue for its value and you know, kind of. Clearest, clearest space for for more of it to be uh, published and appreciated, but no, I, I am not, uh, for example, saying that uh, journals should must pub, you know should or must publish a certain quantity or quota of any one kind of any one kind of uh, poetry, and certainly editors have the right to their own to their own tastes and preferences. Yeah, you so you you you're not uh, nominating yourself to chair a board uh, to oversee for. <laughs> Uh, for, formalist affirmative action. Yeah. So okay. So then a, a related objection that I heard that I I think has something to it is that you know whether or not this belief or prejudice about meter and politics held in the past and maybe has its uh, has a residue today. The reason that meter the reason that metrical poetry isn't published as much is not that anybody has any kind of ideological objection to it, but just that it's out of fashion. It, it may be true that in some sense that there is, there is now an audience, prefer, a, a somewhat greater audience preference for free verse. That, that's actually um, hard to establish or prove in a, for a lot of reasons. Uh, for example, in terms of, you know, m most people with a, uh, most readers and critics and judges of poetry are themselves poets. You know, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's a, yeah. some, it's a somewhat insular uh, world. And um, as I, as I definitely do say in the essay there, when we're talking about the poetry market, um, it's a, it's a heavily gatekept market. It's an, uh, it's an artificial market in some, in certain respects. Um, it is, it is not a, open you know, free market <laughs> competition <laughs> yeah, yeah. very little in america is by, right. by the way yeah. but but the poetry market is it's a strange small insular world and i and i touch on a, a little bit of um the fact that for example uh there is a, a sort of system of licensure in in poetry where where, where credentials and and uh that people uh, can pick up in various ways. There is also, you know, many uh, publications I would point out solicit a lot of their work. You know, yeah. so it's it, it, there's um, they're, they're not necessarily choosing what they publish always on the basis of some kind of popular demand. And and you know the the ways that we have to measure actual popular demand for poetry are in, in first of all imperfect. 
Second of all, I, I've never seen anybody who claims affirmatively that free verse is more popular than formal poetry supply any, any kind of data <laughs> on this at all. <laughs> you know, well, we, <laughs> other than the kind of data that you're providing, right? Like it's more popular like by virtue of getting published more. Right? Yes, but, or getting more awards. But yeah. I, I guess I'm getting it that, that those kind of um, metrics are not uh, operating in, in, a, in a totally free market um yeah and pretty, the, poetry is pretty like on the far end of n not being a meritocracy as <laughs> the spectrum goes <laughs> it's like if if like sports are kind of close to the other end poetry is maybe down on this one yeah and, and i guess I, the, the last thing i would say is that you know w whenever i've encountered any kind of glimpse into some kind of n numbers here i mean one thing would be social media right poets yeah. share poems on social media, uh, free verse poets, formless poets, prose poets, mm -hmm. everybody shares their work at this point. And um, that provides a little window of transparency because, you know, social media comes with little metrics of how you're, <laughs> how popular you are. Uh, it's kind of a popularity game in some ways. And, you know, I have seen, you know, from just sort of observing social media that sometimes the formal poems get a lot of attention and, and gain popularity. Sometimes uh, free verse uh, poems do. There are a lot of poems that people share that just, you know, get some, some interest and attention from friends. And, yeah. and that's it. There, I, 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 I have no sort of evidence in hand, and I don't think anybody does, that free verse poetry is outperforming uh, formal poetry in that way. I guess the other thing, the other number you could bring in would be book sales, but there too, <laughs> right. um, those are not frequently reported on in poetry. They're other, they're very low for almost everybody. Yeah. You know, so so anytime you kind of try and bring numbers in to prove that somehow free verse is more popular, I, I think that's a very hard case to make from that end. So okay, so a related a related related objection maybe is that. The, I'm trying it here. I have it. I have it put. He says there aren't many metrical poems being published, but that could just be that the metrical poems are crap. If the first part is to prove significant, he needs to show that the magazines are failing to publish good poems in meter. I mean, I assume there are proportional numbers of good formal poems, but the argument re would require you to make this case. I think the suggestion being maybe that because uh, free verse poetry became dominant for whatever reason mm -hmm. at this point. It is dominant, and then therefore most people who have an inclination to write poetry are writing that kind of poetry. And so, if there is any, if a good poet is one in ten thousand or one in fifty thousand or whatever, and you have a million free verse poets, you're going to have more good poets in that group. You know, so that that's maybe one one response that it like maybe there was a historic, and this is this is like Y.G. Ma has a really good essay in Slate from a while ago about female chess players and why there's never been a female world champion. And it's basically, it's this same reason that they're just there for, for other shitty reasons, their women were not playing chess as much. And so there are fewer chess players. And so there are fewer great female chess players. And so I think there's an argument to be made that, I mean, Darwin talks about this with like once a, a, a once a very, once a variety of a species becomes dominant, it tends to become more dominant. And once a, a variety becomes rare, it tends to become more rare. You granted that we're not eating and killing each other literally at this point, but uh, so right. I, I would reject the, the notion that um, that uh, form of. I, I keep. By the way, I hate the term formal poetry. As I say, I know, I know metrical, metrical poetry. Yeah, right. Um, 
that metrical poetry has simply vanished due to some sort of Darwinian <laughs> survival of the fittest thing. No, I, no, I, I don't think that's right. And I, I would say that um, that is another area where the essay couldn't do as much as say, you know, a book would or something. But I, I do believe long story short that, uh, that metrical poetry is despite the, the kind of market factors against it still being written at a very high level by a good number of, of poets. And uh, some of those poets I've boosted, you know, and, and, and recommended in other settings, other criticism on social media. Um, I, I would be happy to, you know, rattle off a, a list of names here if if you want matthew buckley smith everybody should, buy. <laughs> everybody should i think we can all agree matthew. <laughs> <laughs> but no not this argument would not it's true and it's a very again a very smart and good question like it, this argument wouldn't be worth making if i didn't think that there were um a significant number of poets writing using the tools of meter and rhyme at a very high level and doing excellent work that is that is underappreciated. Yeah, that, I mean that seems right. I mean, a, a related objection or a maybe a complementary objection I got uh, was if you care so much about this, why are, instead of writing this, and this is maybe a sort of a larger question about the essay, but instead of writing this essay, picking this fight, why wouldn't you just write an essay promoting the work of some good formal poets or some good metrical poets? Excellent question, and I, I am doing that very thing. I'm, I'm about to start a review of uh, of three um, younger formalist poets whose uh, whose uh, work has come to to my attention um, either through my own reading or because they sent me a, a review or galley copies of their books within the past year or two. These are three books I really enjoyed. Um, I know I, I think I should let the review come out before I talk too much about it, but, but, but long story short, I, I am about to review and recommend three new, brand new uh, books by younger formalist poets that I really, really enjoy. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I do think that probably any given essay can only be one essay and it, it can't do all things. Um, so I got, I'll read um, a typically uh, learned and nuanced short essay form question from Cameron, uh, who's a, a student at Oxford University. Uh, he says, I noticed that the essay mostly restricts, I'm sorry, I, I say he, I actually don't know if it, I, yeah, I, I, have, I always fuck up the pronouns. I don't know. But um, Cameron says, I noticed that the essay mostly restricts itself to Anglo-American poets, not, for instance, delving into the metrical practices in the Caribbean. That may well be because of space and word count limitations. Uh, yeah, why wasn't this long? Why this? Why wasn't this too long essay longer? Um, uh, <laughs> um, so, when we say fairly, you know, this, Cameron says. So, I thought I'd ask whether Austin might be interested in sharing his thoughts on Caribbean poets' approaches to meter. I'm thinking, uh, especially of uh, Derek Walcott and Kamal Brathwaite, who seem to me to embody different approaches to the Master's House and Master's Tools debate. Walcott repurposing the tools, the loose items of the language used by the colonizers, the language he loves, and Brathwaite, meanwhile, declaiming that the hurricane does not rage in iambic pentameter. I, 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 was, I did not know Kamal Brathwaite until I saw this, his name here and had to look him up. Uh, Walcott, obviously, is, is terrific. But uh, yeah, I'm curious if you you were, you, you have a, well, you actually have a PhD in this shit. So maybe you, you, know, <laughs> you know more than I do. So yeah, you have any thoughts? I, I do. And uh, I know better than to do off the cuff, quick take. <laughs> 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 it's an excellent question. And, I, and uh, 
you know, the, the poets uh, Cameron mentioned are absolutely well worth looking into. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to, um, to freestyle, uh, uh, you know, criticism of anybody's uh, poetry, which is also why a minute ago, I, I tried not to talk too much about the, the review that I'm doing, because I'm just too afraid sure. of kind of uh, doing somebody an injustice by speaking off the cuff. I, I will, I will sort of shift this then slightly to you sent me a question that you got and both that and this one touch on the question of politics and you you do talk in your essay uh, at some length about not just the use of free verse or formal verse in in you know political contexts but uh specifically in sort of traditions within traditions or counter traditions within traditions whether it's you know uh, black americans writing with a kind of a, a, a what i guess it would be another version of the uh, Du Bois, you know, double consciousness. Uh, I think it was Marilyn Nelson who talked about, you know, my people's songs versus the master's, you know, uh, meter, but she sort of refused to to fully embrace or or uh, let go of either um, and preferred to to um, make use of both. You you got an, e- an email about Claudia Rankin. Would you read that um, for us? Yes, I'd be glad to. So uh, this is what I put out a, a call for anybody who might want to send in a question. And um, this was the question I, I, I got sent. Uh, I, I was curious, what do you think is the effect of Claudia Rankin's free verse in a work like Citizen or Just Us? I heard Simon Armitage, the uh, British poet laureate, criticize the subtitle of Citizen, be, uh, which is an American lyric, because he didn't see how it could be considered a lyric in one of his Oxford lectures. Is there a sense in which a prose poem can be more political, whether progressively or regressively or whatever, in America at present, considering how much more open the general public seems to approaching prose as opposed to metered poetry? I guess I'm suggesting or asking, does prose poetry speak more directly to a larger audience than verse does today? I think I spoke to this a little bit when I said that it's it's remarkably hard to tell uh, in terms of numbers, what the quote-unquote general public prefers or doesn't prefer yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in terms of poetry. Specifically, first of all, in terms of Simon Armitage's criticism of the subtitle of Rankin's book, I, I have to say I, I disagree with that, and I, I don't really like or do um, the critical move where you try and <laughs> set boundaries on what a poem is or isn't sure. or or what a lyric is or isn't. I, I, um, you know, because that's just asking, it's sort of rules are made to be broken in the, in the mm-hmm. arts. And, and that's just asking for, uh, for somebody to prove you wrong. Of course, uh, Rankin's uh, Citizen, for example, it, it's a hybrid text. I mean, it contains yeah. both prose and uh, verse. Yeah, I mean, it is, um, it's it, over, it's overwhelmingly prose though. It yeah. is overwhelmingly yeah. prose, but it, but it, but it contains some. Yeah. As well as a bunch of pictures. I mean, it's sort of a collage. That's, that's right. That's right. And so those kind of, um, first of all, those kind of experiments, formal experiments are, are fascinating to me. Prose poetry, I, I have a, a great affection for prose poetry. Personally, I've, I've tried writing some of it in myself in the last couple of years. I teach it, you know, when, I, when I've taught, uh, I have uh, taught a fair amount of it. And so I, I certainly think prose poetry can be lyric and can be uh, po- uh, poetry. That's, that's not even a question to me. But in terms of it, but it is very hard to say what, you know, what the public preference is 
and um, whether and whether the, the popularity, the seeming popularity of prose poetry in the case of Rankin's book, which was which I understand did was a very you know had good sales numbers and and became very popular and, and gained a lot of visibility. Um, I'm not sure if if that can be taken as a of that one book can be taken as an instance of a larger trend. You know, um, I don't know, in other words, whether prose poetry speaks more directly to a larger audience than verse does. Maybe so, but, um, but I, I don't think popularity in that sense is, is first of all, excuse me, first of all, the, uh, um, the main <laughs> arbiter of, of quality anyway. And there are a lot of, um, a lot of decisions and kind of gatekeeping stuff that goes into what the the general public sees in, in magazines or coming out of book presses anyway. So it's, it's just hard to say. It's, it's kind of an unanswerable question, although a very interesting question. Yeah, well, and, and the, the related question, which is sort of, it's almost buried in both of these, both this and, and Cameron's, is, is there a sense in which a prose poem can be more political? And then Cameron's, I think the, the framing is... He, 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 the the question sort of refers to the master's tools and master's house mm. debate, which is mm-hmm. was that Audrey Lord or was she quoting somebody when she said it? That was uh, Audrey Lord. Yeah. yeah, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, or something close to that. Right. Which is I don't know. It's always seemed to me a, a dubious claim, but I mean, in both cases, there is a there is almost an implication that we're taking it as a given that poetry either can be political or can affect politics can affect some political change. And I'm, and you, you, you talk so much in your, I mean, if there's, if there is a, if there's a, you know, a very simple moral to take from your essay, it would be metrical form is independent of politics. (laughs) Those things are not, don't have no direct relationship one to the other. Uh, But I'm, I'm curious for you, both in this specific context and more broadly, because you're, you're somebody who's you're very into poetry and very into politics. I'm curious how how do you think about poetry as a political object or act or you know act of participation? That is a very good question. So yes, I am very <laughs> very interested, uh, if not obsessed with with both. And <laughs> it, w- w- the, the political relevance or value of of poetry is a huge subject in and of itself. I mean, that, that is another uh, book-length subject in, in itself. And something that I've, I've touched on, I think, in some previous essays that I've written, but, but you know, anybody l- probably listening to this show will know some of the touchstones here, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, Auden famously saying, poetry makes nothing happen, sure. although Auden was very, very much a political yeah. poet in a lot of ways. And that quote is often taken out of context yeah. because yeah. later in the same passage, he says, poetry is a way of happening, you know. Yeah. Um, so, but that becomes a touchstone. William Carlos Williams saying, you know, it is, it is difficult to get the news from, from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Um, Adrian Rich is, is, is a is a touchstone uh, here. And, and um, I think anybody, she or Audre Lorde or June Jordan were um, poets of that generation who were, um, who first of all are still widely read and looked up to today. And second of all, were extremely political in their work. Um, you know, I would, I would point to careers of poets like that uh, as, a, as kind of a refutation of the idea that poetry has no political impact or could have no political impact. I, I think 
I, you know, I think they had a, a, a huge cultural impact, although it is the poetry's impact is usually of a, of a slow burn kind of nature. So it's not as if, you know, they did their work or, or gave their lectures or what have you. And instantly, you know, <laughs> the, right. uh, the whole culture was buzzing and, and changed overnight. It's, it's just not like that. And there's a, there, there is a good um, Adrienne Rich quote about this where she, um, and I, I can't quote it perfectly, but she uses a metaphor that's something like um, poetry is, uh, is an underground aquifer that wears away stone. So that it's kind of, it's this kind of underground or subsurface cultural force that over time has has a slow kind of impact, and um, I, I you know I I believe that that can be true that that poetry can have a political impact that is um, not necessarily immediate where it's going to make the newspapers over, <laughs> overnight or anything like that, but um, over time uh, through its uh, impact uh, on on readers who take that reading into their own writing or their own lives, um, that it can be impactful politically. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard to claim that like X can never have an effect on Y. And, you know, I think certainly over time and in, in rare cases and who knows, you know, yeah, sure. It, it can, it can have this effect or that effect. I, I am super skeptical of, of political agendas or projects in among writers of poetry. And I'm curious for you as somebody who, who is pretty passionate about both, do you ever see your, I mean, do you, do you ever sort of set out to, to perform a political act by way of, or in your poems, or is there, is, do you, do you allow one to be a relief from the other? Or even if that, if that, again, like if that's your tool, if that's, if you, if you want to affect political change and you choose to write poetry, how good a plan is that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe not so great. I, there's, uh, you know, Kenneth Burke, the literary critic. I, I came across a quote, and I'm, I, I can't cite a source for this, but I came across it recently, and it, and it made me laugh, and it stuck in my mind. It was by Kenneth Burke, who was a literary critic, who was apparently writing about um, this topic, poetry, activist poetry, and the potential impact of activist poetry. And he wasn't against it, but he said, um, one cannot recommend poetry as a cure for toothache without disclosing the superiority of dentistry. <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah. think that's kind yeah. of how, <laughs> how I feel that, that poetry absolutely, I mean, first of all, can't help being political because in a certain sense, everything is and certainly can have a, a, a political impact, especially in the longer term. But in terms of directly changing world events, I think you want to go with more direct forms of <laughs> activism 99 times out of 100. Um, although, there are, of course, there are, there are poets like Rich or, or, or Lauren who have made those two elements of their career, who have kept those in balance and been both you know, impactful poets and activists. Um, and, and sometimes those two... Can, can meet in, in really fruitful ways in their projects. But I, I think, I, I wouldn't recommend, you know, to a, a group, if I were speaking to a, a group of activists that were looking to make an immediate, you know, overnight change in Congress or something like that, yeah. I'm not sure the first thing I would recommend would be to write a poem. Yeah, I, I, I'm also, I'm, I'm supremely cynical about some of this stuff. And I just, I think that especially among 
progressives and, and leftists, you know, who, who, who are for the most part, who you're talking about when you're talking about poets, mm-hmm. uh, there's just such a, there's such an, a, an impulse to spend one's time fussing over language, which is not to say that language never matters, not to say that language can't make a big difference in people's lives, not to say that there aren't parts of language worth fussing over a great length as I spend most of my time doing, but, but it, in a, in the context of political activism, I think, I think progressives and leftists have a tendency to bicker about word choice rather than take a more difficult and more direct action, if that makes sense. And poetry provides sort of another vehicle for doing that. Uh, Auden, toward the end of his life, when he, when he was asked about this stuff, tended to take the stance that um, the most meaningful political act that poets make is, is just taking care of language, you know, using language in, a, uh, in an honest and, and you know, in the, in the broadest sense, responsible way. And yeah. I, I think, you know, there, there's something to that. There is certain, I, I certainly think that um, poets in general are, or at least are, are supposed to be, <laughs> concerned with... Um, Languages, um, integrity, it, 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 in, in a, again, in a broad sense, uh, language's potential to do good or, or do harm and, and trying to use it in, in, in ways that do not do harm. And so, and, and that is something that, for example, politicians very much <laughs> do not do most of the time. Most politicians <laughs> are, are very sloppy users of language, sometimes very manipulative users of language. And so just by, just by, treating language with, with care, I think poets are doing something um, in a small way, political and, and politically meaningful, even if, again, there's not an overnight kind of impact. Yeah, I'll, uh, I, can, I can live with that. <laughs> do, you so, disagree, do you disagree? Well, no, I mean, I, I guess I think of the writing of poetry as being just way more amoral. And, and I, I also think that um, the language clearly ch- changes over time and that, that's always been the case and always will be the case. And I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by certain develops, developments in language. I love slang uh, of, of a, I tend to love slang and, and innovations in language when they create opportunities for new ways of meaning and new distinctions, new specifications. I, I am less excited about change, whether it's inevitable or not, when it is either a shutting down of distinctions, you know, as with the classic example of infer and imply slowly coming to mean the same thing, um, you know, which maybe maybe that's inevitable, maybe that's the kind of thing that always happens. It doesn't thrill me as a, as a, as a development. And then the other kind of change I'm very cynical about is a, a change in language. And this is something I think politicians do participate in the change that is meant to purify the moral condition of the language. And while, you know, I, as with, as with like the the Simon Armitage claim about the lyric, it just seems like, what are you picking this fight for? Like, what are you, why why are you bothering to say this thing? And I I actually, I have that book of his lectures that I'm going to read. So I'm curious to see that in context, if it is interesting, Uh, because I've liked a lot of his poems. I haven't read any of his criticism. So yeah, like I I always hesitate to like pick fights over, over like a particular change in the language that somebody feels a personal attachment to, because I don't want to pick fights with people over that stuff. But I, I also just think that any language is, made up of history and history is just soaked in blood. And so I think the idea that we can 
make sure that our language is in some way pure or moral is just a, it's a it's it's never ending and it's sort of a fool's errand. And I think sometimes we we spin our wheels looking for new ways to tidy up the language rather than making somebody's life better in a more concrete way. That's my, that's my, my cynical uh, assessment. Oh, I, I agree with that. And I should make clear, I, I wasn't really talking about uh, policing language or, or purifying it to some higher uh, perfect holy state. I, I agree that that's not possible. When, I, when I'm talking about integrity, I'm talking more about the kind of thing that we mean when we say that a poem has no false notes in it, you know, right. that, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that I was talking more about that kind of thing yeah. and um, keeping language, you know, <laughs> in some sort of pure yeah, yeah, state or but, working in, order. Yeah. But by that, by that standard, I think politicians definitely score poorly because the, the false note is, is, what, is what brings out most of all. I've never any of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah even the ones one sort of likes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh God. I'm. You know, my 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 sort of my other lar- larger thought about this whole essay is, you know, there are there are certainly like provocative pieces of art that people will say, hey, it got it got us talking, so I guess it did its job. And I think when it comes to pieces of art, I'm I don't think that is always a mark of success. I think just because it got people talking, uh, piss Christ was not necessarily a work of genius. But but I think for an for a critical essay, that is a pretty good standard. I think like. If if this if this provokes a bunch of arguments about uh, either how it could have been done better or how various claims you make within it are are true or false to what degree, that's pretty good. And it is it's a it is a it is a provocative and engaging essay. I think now again anybody who has who has a, a passing interest in the in the field will 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 um will find it worthwhile. Thank you. And so yeah, yeah, thank you for doing because I also know it's it's a lot of work to do something like this. And as yeah. soon as you publish it people like me start saying, hey, here's some objections. <laughs> you can never anticipate or defeat all objections, but I, I and, and nor can um, it, nor can I settle this debate in any way. I, I do hope that it starts a conversation and, and uh, is provocative in a good way, but I, I cannot lay down the law here. I cannot settle <laughs> the debate once and for all. I can I can only get people talking. Um, and and I do let me know when your your triple review is coming out. Absolutely. Do you want to do you want to uh, name? Uh, I was going to say wh- whether it's one of those poets or somebody else. Do you want to do you want to give a a recommendation of something something uh, you you've enjoyed reading or is worthwhile or good something so, something to make us feel not totally uh, cynical and pessimistic about, about poetry or writing. <laughs> yes, um, first of all, I, I will say the poets uh, that I'm about to review: uh, uh, Armin Davudian, um, Alexis Sears, and Boris Draljuk. Oh um, shit! Okay, I, all right. I, and I uh, and as far as other uh, reading, um, I hope I'm not you know, saying this too early, uh, but uh, because it's going it, to, I'm still working on it and it may be a little bit, a little while before it comes out, but um, uh, this is a total left turn away from, from formalism. Uh, I'm working on an essay about Yoko Ono and oh. uh, her book, uh, uh, Grapefruit from the, from the 60s, uh, which is a book of um, poetry and uh, performance pieces and drawings uh, from the kind of 60s, 70s era that I have loved for, for a long time. And um, because this new Beatles documentary came out and people right. are kind of talking about the Beatles and Yoko Ono again, 
I thought it would be a fun time to revisit that book, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, and it's and it's a it is a it's uh, I guess what you would I don't know would you call it a, a self styled experimental avant garde? I mean, would you? Mm-hmm. Is it yeah. okay? All right, yeah, because that was her mode in most things. It is. It is both experimental avant garde and a, a very very funny book. So, <laughs> that never hurts. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah. Well, I, I look forward to to that and to um, all of those. And I, I'll have to say, I'm gonna have to uh, pick on her a little little bit. But uh, Alexis, if you hear this, let's set up that fucking interview. We've been, <laughs> yeah, we've been going back and forth a little bit. But she's she's yeah. terrific. As as yeah. I know, I know her work and I know Armin's work, and they're both terrific. I don't the the third one you named Boris Adraliak, whose book is uh, My Hollywood. Okay. And uh, Alexis's uh, book that's coming out soon is Out of Order. And uh, Armin's book, which has already come, it's a, it's a chapbook called uh, Swan Song. That was my conversation with Austin Allen. Uh, he, you can find his essay, Hardline Politics, in the LA Review of Books. I will, of course, include a link to that, as well as his book, Pleasures of the Game. Uh, I realized... I've had Austin come on now a couple times to make great use of his uh, Yale-educated, PhD-holding, uh, nerdy poetry brain. And I uh, I don't want to give you the wrong impression about him, uh, because he is, of course, a, a poetry nerd, but uh, that is he's more than just a, an expert. So I thought I would close this uh, week by reading one of his poems. This is probably my favorite poem from his book. It's called The Order of Her Room. I'll just read it quickly and then uh, maybe say a word and sign off. This is The Order of Her Room. This one is it's about two pages, but they're, they're sort of short, short lines, short stanzas. Buddhism, it was not. Maybe it was, a bit. Maybe the opposite, which nonetheless contained the part that she'd been taught and from which we abstained. We didn't live in sin. We didn't share the lease or any special rights, except eating, most nights, from a Vietnamese or Thai food tin, or the same cereal bowl with separate spoons. Maybe part Buddhism, and on the whole, not bad. Half nudism some afternoons. Her towels hung as drapes, plain pink or striped, screening us from the street, rooftops, and fire escapes. In Sunday summer heat, we sat topless and typed. Although it was her space, I lingered in it more. Days when I worked from home, her home, I sat in place and watched her go and come, bone-tired through the door. My radiologist in training. She would fall asleep after her call, still wearing her white robe as I lay close and kissed the flesh of one earlobe. Unpierced and simple. After her virtuous nap, she'd rise and wash, re-enter with panache in a pink towel wimple that dripped in her lap as she sat down and tried to work, with me beside and just the towel on. So I angled to play, 
wanted, like some charged ray, to be absorbed, indrawn, and find, well, what? What is the body's center? Can it be reached or not? How shall the seeker enter? Quizzing her flesh and bone, I hardly knew my own, until I passed, somehow, beyond the window pane, out to the fire escape, from which I peer back now, striped towel, undrape the radiance of that scene. We sit in our bare skin, crossing our legs, and read, and write. Our knees may touch a little, but not much. If we have any need at all, we'll order in. So I, I like so much about this poem. It's, it's you know, it, it is, uh, I think, it, it is less straightforward than it appears to be. It is a, it's a, it's a memory poem. It's a nostalgic poem about, uh, a, you know, living with a, with an old girlfriend in, um, uh, school and, in, uh, uh, sounds like she's on call. It sounds like she's a resident. I believe she's my radiologist, radiologist, radiologist in training. Right. If she was, if she were a med in medical school, she wouldn't be a radiologist in training yet. She'd just be a medical student. So yeah, she, this would have been her residency. Um, I've also, uh, lived with a woman during residency. It is during her residency. <laughs> it's, um, not always picturesque. This is a, this is a, um, but this is a pretty attractive vision of it. And so, I mean, uh, there are a number of poems that this poem gives a nod to, among them, uh, Adrian Rich's Living in Sin, terrific little domestic poem. Uh, I, you know, of course, one can't help but hear uh, the women come and go when we watch her go and come, bone tired through the door here uh, from Proofrock. Uh, and I think also of... Um, uh, a. Stallings' wonderful poem, Lovejoy Street, the house where we were happy, begins. As well as the, the, the very strange and understated, but, but sort of ultimately devastating short story, The Thistles in Sweden by William Maxwell. I think like some of those poems, but maybe in a, in a sort of a, a, in a way that's a little quieter than, than, the poems, which probably is closer to the Maxwell story, the order of her room doesn't, it gets most of its tension, I think, its emotional tension, it's, you know, it's Warren irony from an implied change in the midst of all this, you know, radiology uh, uh, metaphor, this kind of a, a, a Dunian um, flight of flight of metaphor. What is the body center? Can it be reached or not? How shall the seeker enter? Quizzing her flesh and bone, I hardly knew my own. He's talking about a radiologist. And of course, uh, in radiology, one sends particles passing clear through other particles as if they weren't there at all. And that's, of course, what happens to the speaker until I passed somehow beyond the window pane. He's speaking about this closed, insular, sometimes claustrophobic, highly intimate world. Uh, what Vonnegut called a nation of two, and he finds himself outside of it. Striped towel undrape the radiance of that scene. That's 
Boy, that rings a bell. I can't quite place it, but I, I'm sure Austin has some some older poem in mind. What is that? I mean, there's a, you know, there's a little bit of what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. But there's not. There's something else there. Striped towel undrape the radiance of that scene. There's some other poem there. I can't. I can't quite smell it. Or I smell it, but I can't quite name it. And then we have that wonderful return to the present. This this present that we have not actually inhabited in the poem at all so far. But as with uh, as with Pinter's betrayal, we end. We end the uh, the story at the beginning, with no sense of conflict at all, in the unremarkable, immediate initial present, uh, which is of course taken entirely for granted. Um, we sit in our bare skin, crossing our legs and read and write. Our knees may touch a little, but not much. If we have any need at all, we'll order in. I know the other the other poem. This is not this is not the towel, but the other poem that 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 last stanza reminds me of is uh, Mary Jo Salter's really wonderful and sort of sad and sexy poem, "Bed of Letters," from her book "Nothing by Design." But yeah, this one is order of her room. This is one I've I've come back to again and again. I'm gonna read. You know, it, it's a it's a little longer than some, but I'm gonna go ahead and read it again just because I think it's worth hearing. You, of course are listening to a fucking podcast, so if you want to, you can turn it off. But I recommend you let this play out because it's a good poem and worth hearing at least twice. This is The Order of Her Room by Austin Allen. Buddhism it was not. Maybe it was. A bit. Maybe the opposite, which nonetheless contained the part that she'd been taught and from which we abstained. We didn't live in sin. We didn't share the lease or any special rights, except eating most nights from a Vietnamese or Thai food tin, or the same cereal bowl with separate spoons. Maybe part Buddhism, and on the whole not bad. Half nudism some afternoons. Her towels hung as drapes, plain pink or striped, screening us from the street, rooftops and fire escapes. In Sunday summer heat, we sat topless and typed. Although it was her space, I lingered in it more. Days when I worked from home, her home, I sat in place and watched her go and come bone-tired through the door. My radiologist in training. She would fall asleep after her call, still wearing her white robe, as I lay close and kissed the flesh of one earlobe, unpierced and simple. After her virtuous nap, she'd rise and wash, re-enter with panache in a pink towel wimple that dripped in her lap as she sat down and tried to work, with me beside, and just the towel on. So I angled to play, wanted like some charged ray to be absorbed, indrawn, and find, well, what? What is the body's center? Can it be reached or not? How shall the seeker enter? Quizzing her flesh and bone, I hardly knew my own. 
until I passed somehow beyond the window pane, out to the fire escape from which I peer back now. Striped towel, undrape the radiance of that scene. We sit in our bare skin, crossing our legs, and read and write. Our knees may touch a little, but not much. If we have any need at all, we'll order in. Just one more note. The line, I think, the line I, I, I catch on every time I read it, and I, I do, I marvel at a little bit, right almost in the middle of the poem, unpierced and simple. He says, my radiologist in training, she would fall asleep after her call, still wearing her white robe as I lay close and kissed the flesh of one earlobe, unpierced and simple. It's a poem with mostly sort of long sentences, take up multiple lines, but he describes this, this pause, this brief moment, kissing an earlobe, a single earlobe, and then the line, unpierced and simple, is it's a whole foot short. This is a, a trimeter poem, and that's a dimeter line, just two feet, unpierced and simple. But both of those words set off with a period at either end. Both of those words seem to suit the abbreviation. And he, yeah, he, he, uh, there's a there's a wonderful um, there's a wonderful Baudelaire poem, "Invitation to the Voyage," that uh, Wilbur translates particularly well, in which all of the the anguish, all of the sorrow, all of the 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 pain that is so present in so much of Baudelaire's poetry is left off stage. But the poem is not cloying because. Uh, one knows it's there out, you know, one knows it's there and the, it has only been, it has been suspended only for the duration of the poem. And I, that feels like the case here. It is a, it is a memory that retains, uh, if not a purity, then a good cheer and a fondness, even if uh, somewhere outside its brackets, there was some real loss. Anyway, that was The Order of Her Room by Austin Allen. Uh, and this is Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening. Uh, you can reach me as always at sleericketts at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.